Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Rob Day, a general partner at Spring Lane Capital. Spring Lane Capital aims to partner with strong management teams who are selling or using distributed assets with compelling customer economics in the energy, water, food, and waste sectors. In these sectors, they focus on solutions that have significantly positive impacts on the sustainability of our natural resources, which they believe offers advantaged long-term benefits economically and socially. Rob has been in the clean tech world for a long time, initially in management consulting, then in traditional venture capital, and now doing what I think he called small distributed project finance with Springland Capital. Springland's pretty new, but they found a, a niche which seems like it's both underserved and also important. And we talked about a number of things in this episode, including the types of work that they do, how they evaluate what projects they work on, how they define success, how it fits into the overall climate fight. And we also talked about if Rob wasn't doing the work he's doing, what other kinds of things would be impactful to help with climate change. And finally, Rob gave some well-heated advice to anyone who's feeling like I am and concerned about climate and not really sure where to start. I had fun with this one, and I learned a lot too. I hope you do as well. Rob Day. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. Beautiful day like today too. Good excuse to walk a few blocks from the office. Yeah, it is a beautiful day. And it's funny. I mean, I think as I've gotten down the climate journey path, it is a global pursuit for sure. But locally, as I've made the rounds, your name just keeps coming up as kind of an OG in the clean tech world. When I started investing in this sector, I did have hair. It's true. <laughs> When did you start investing in the sector? I thought you were going to say, when did you start losing your hair? <laughs> so I've been investing in the sector now for going on 15 years, pretty much 15 years at this point. Got it. So you got going like right leading into the last bubble. That's exactly right. Yeah. I started out working with a fledgling venture capital firm in San Francisco focused on this area and thought I was just doing that to earn a few bucks doing some extra hours for them as I was looking around to see what startup I was going to join and ended up turning that into a full-time job instead, which was fun. And then funnily enough, I actually started a blog in 2004, maybe it was 2005, but only because I looked around for news sources. And now, of course, we know about Green Tech Media and all these other news sources that are out there in this, but there was, wasn't even a news source about what deal had been done in the space. And I was like, fine, I had a blogspot.com site and I started blogging on stuff like that. So yeah, it's been a fun 15 years. So what kind of investing were you doing at that time? I was with a group called Expansion Capital Partners, which doesn't exist anymore. But it was growth stage clean tech venture capital before there were a lot of growth stage clean tech ventures, which was itself kind of challenging. But it was fun. I was getting to work with a couple of great partners, one of whom had come out of the corporate venture space. And it was a really good grounding for me in understanding how venture capital actually works. And we did do deals. We did get to invest in a few companies, some of which actually did well, some of which obviously not so much. The nature of the beast in venture capital investing. But yeah, it was a really good entry point for me in understanding how to view this world through the lens of an investor 
not just, hey, what does the world need? Or, hey, what do I think is a cool startup idea? And when you say this world, I guess this world means something different to many different people in the space. So how do you define it? What does your area of focus, how would you describe it? And also, how has it evolved from 2004 when you got into today? When I say this world, I mean it pretty broadly, just the world of sustainability and entrepreneurship, generally speaking. But one of the things which I realized, and it was the whole reason I ended up wanting to be an entrepreneur and then an investor in this sector in the first place, was I realized there's going to need, at least in my opinion, there's going to definitely need to be a lot of leadership from the business community into this massive area of concern around climate change in particular and just environmental sustainability in general. And I had always had the belief that if you want to see more of something happen in the world, you show people how they can make more money by doing it. And then magically more people show up to do it. And that was how I kind of defined why I wanted to get in on the entrepreneurship end of it. Just with energy parameters or broader even from the beginning? At first it was just energy. Taking a step back, I grew up in an environmentally conscious household. My father worked for the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee as a staffer, for instance, when I was in junior high type age. And when I was younger, I cared as much about like clean water and just sort of breathable air as much as climate change. But then I, in my early 20s, got a lot of grounding in what was going on with regards to climate change. And it seemed so existential even at that point that I wanted to do something in that realm. And my job was actually at that point in time, out of college, I was actually working at environmental nonprofits. And my job had shifted over time within those nonprofits to being working with large companies, helping them figure out how they could make more money by viewing the world through more of an environmental sustainability lens. Sort of quasi-consulting, but really getting paid in case studies, not getting paid in terms of actual dollars. It was a phenomenal experience. I got to sit inside the boardroom of a Fortune X big pulp and paper company, for instance, at one point, got yelled at by the CEO for being an environmentalist just in general. I got to go work with large chemical companies and see how they were actually trying to figure out how to make more money in this way by rethinking pretty core business models in some cases. At one point, I got flown all around the world to different continents to hug trees as part of a series of sustainable forestry case studies, which was actually a really cool experience too. But coming out of all of that, I said, okay, look, it's not the only sphere in which to have influence, but if you really want to make a dent on any of these issues, you've got to have the business voice in there. And in particular, in the late 90s, I was exposed to a lot of what is now a little bit more sort of commonly held viewpoint, but was as I was working with a lot of really smarter people in, in the environmental nonprofit world who were doing really smart analysis around climate change, it was very clear that that was going to be sort of the issue of my lifetime from an environmental perspective. And therefore, I left that nonprofit to go to business school to try to figure out how to become a clean energy entrepreneur came out of business school at a spectacularly bad time to be an entrepreneur of any type. When was that? 2001. And so right at the tail end of the dot-com bubble. I went into business school and everybody was talking about what dot-com internships they were going to be getting. Came out of business school and people were like, oh my God, you got a job in management and consulting? You're so lucky. So real major shift in what was going on while I was in business school, in the business world at least. But spent a couple of years in management consulting and left there to try to figure out then what startup I was going to join in the clean energy world and ended up, like I said, stumbling instead into this entry-level role in venture capital with that fledgling venture capital firm. And so here we are in 2019. So tell me about Springlane Capital. What are you doing and how did you get here? Yeah. So Springlane Capital, real briefly, we are investing capital in the deployment 
of smaller scale systems. So going way back to 20 years ago, when I was first getting started in this career, there was a phrase that was in currency then called small is beautiful. And really what it was getting across is if you have more of your energy, food, water systems, if you have more of them be local Mm -hmm. and smaller scale, you are avoiding a lot of transportation, you're right-sizing things for what is actually needed, you're engaging more people locally with these types of things so that they actually have a little bit more of a visceral feel about where their electricity comes from and stuff like that. And it has a lot of other implications as well, but one of the things that was true about it is, especially on that transportation side of it. And when by transportation, I'm not talking about cars, I'm talking about actually transporting energy, food, water, and waste. That if you can avoid having to take those really heavy physical commodities, or in the case of electricity, just hard to move commodities, and you can produce and use them more locally, then you have some form of efficiency advantage that you could take advantage of. Now, the counter to that is, okay, but you've also got efficiencies of scale. And that's why we have in our economy these large hub-and-spoke infrastructure systems where you have large power plants, municipal-scale wastewater treatment plants, things like that. We grow all of our lettuce in the Central Valley of California and then ship it all the way to Boston so that we can have lettuce any time of the year we want it. But a couple of things have changed over those past couple of decades, which is, yeah, you have the efficiency of scale, but you also back then had an efficiency of labor in that if you have a large centralized power plant and you can have a team of people there to watch the dials and turn levers and get in everything, that is roughly the same as if you have to have a team of people on site at a much smaller scale facility to do the same thing and give 24-7 coverage. But now that's not true anymore, thanks to advancements in telecommunications and automation. You can actually run a fleet of these smaller scale systems from a single headquarters. So that diseconomy of labor of going to smaller scale is now mostly gone. And now you're left with the trade-off of just big centralized production facility versus not having to transport stuff. And now we're at a, if I look back upon 15 years of looking at innovations and seeing them successfully commercialized at least from the standpoint of do they actually work, a lot of those innovations, therefore, have been at this smaller scale and more suited for more localized use. But the capital hasn't been there. So sorry, long-winded way of saying what we do at Spring Lane Capital is we provide the capital for those smaller scale systems, which with a couple of exceptions, that capital just hasn't been there. And so what would be an example of the type of project or even better, a specific project if you've got one that you've worked on? Yeah, absolutely. So for instance, we've announced an investment. Our first announced investment was with a company that turns trash into electricity. Uh, There's different ways that you could do that. Just up the road from us in Saugus, there's a big wheelabrator plant where they literally just burn the trash. Not great from an environmental perspective, number one. Number two, though, they need to basically truck trash in from neighboring states to keep that thing full and functioning. Well, this company that we've partnered with, Aries, they have a much smaller system. It basically takes trash in the top end of a vessel and using heat, gravity, and pressure, it gasifies it. It basically turns it into syngas, which they then capture and then use right there on site using off-the-shelf equipment to turn into electricity or for industrial heat. And then also what comes out the bottom of that vessel is an ash called biochar. So Is it the most efficient form of turning trash into gas? No, but what it is is it's very robust and it can work at smaller scale. So if you are a mid-sized town in Kentucky and you have a landfill capacity problem right now, you're basically out of landfill and nobody in town wants to vote for a new landfill or even to expand the current landfill, you're having to pay to ship trash to a neighboring town or increasingly 
to some other town, like several towns over, and you're having to pay a lot to ship that trash. It's called a tipping fee that you're paying. Well, instead, this Aries system, put it right there on site. It takes some of that trash, and instead of paying to ship it away, you pay Aries. Aries takes the trash, turns it into gas, turns the gas into electricity, and then also sells the electricity to, say, a nearby municipal wastewater treatment plant to power their operations. So it's a nice little solution that works really well at that sort of mid-size scale and below, where a lot of other stuff can't. The problem for that company was they only need like $5 million worth of project equity to build out one of their systems for that town. They knew going to that mid-sized town in Kentucky and saying, hey, why don't you go ask taxpayers so that you can raise the money to buy one of our systems for cash, buy it all up front. And then by the way, now the landfill operator of this mid-sized town in Kentucky is going to be in charge of operating this newfangled gasification plant. How's that sound? Turned out that was a really long sales cycle. It would take a long time for them to get one of those sales. The management team there knew what they needed to do was instead just build them themselves, own them, and operate them themselves, and just sell contracts for tipping and sell contracts for power on the back end. But the problem is then they still needed the capital to build out those systems. And if you've ever been an entrepreneur trying to raise $5 million for one project, it's like nearly impossible. Project finance does not work that way. Project finance on a one-off basis is designed to help build out a billion-dollar wind farm, not a $5 million waste gasification facility. So this management team didn't know what to do. They went around trying to raise just a really big round of venture capital. And that's what so many of the entrepreneurs I've seen in 15 years of this end up feeling like they have to do. Like they have to go to venture capital to raise the capital to put steel in the ground somewhere. Spectacularly bad use of venture capital. And so instead, when they came to us, we said, well, we're not going to give you a big round of venture capital either, but we'll set you up with a $25 million pool of capital that will be what you need to put up your next four to six projects. And so that's our first deal. We're excited to work with them. Looking forward to putting some of these projects out there. They're going to take five million bucks at a time from us, but they know the capital is there. So they know they can go after that sales pipeline of theirs and start putting these things out there. What criteria makes a good fit for Springland Capital in terms of the types of projects that you're investing in? Yeah. So first of all, it has to be net positive for the environment. As defined by what? As defined by a combination of factors. One is always going to be atmospheric carbon emissions. It can't make things worse from a climate change perspective, and hopefully it's making things significantly better. But there are other environmental attributes that could be important as well, such as when we look at water and wastewater treatment, maybe it has strong operating characteristics in terms of treating water and wastewater and cleaning up water issues, but still has to have at least break even, if not better, on the carbon side. So it's always that one characteristic that we're tracking across the whole portfolio in terms of net atmospheric carbon emissions. And then a couple of other attributes that are specific to whether it's a waste treatment thing that we're investing in or water treatment or food production or whatever the case may be. That's one thing. It needs to be something where the value proposition to the customer is very clear. And what's holding it back from being adopted is as much as anything else, the lack of capital. So specifically, if you are one of those Aries customers, it needs to be very clear that they are saving money by essentially paying Aries to take their trash versus paying somebody else to truck the trash to some other town to be stuck in a landfill and just turn into uncaptured methane in all likelihood. It can't just be like a tug on the heartstrings. It's got to make financial sense as well without relying on policy. Yeah, that's exactly right. We are stepping into situations where there is that core strong value proposition that has been held back by the lack of capital. We have a particular structure that is fairly new to the financial universe for how to roll those out for these smaller scale systems. 
there's actually a bunch of other stuff out there that is more sort of financially less attractive where this kind of structure could be used. But we're just starting. We're just trying to introduce this to the financial markets. And like I said in the beginning, the best way to get people to want to do more of something is to show how they can make money doing it. And so what we want to do is help these companies get stood up, help these companies get their systems out there with a financial structure that then they can go to mainstream Wall Street capital and say, great, we use $25 million from Spring Lane Capital. You can see our two years of operating track record. Now can you please bring in capital for the next $100 million worth of these projects? And if we can introduce this model in general to more of the impact investor community, people who are doing programmatic related investments, for instance, maybe they can bring lower cost capital to something that is a little bit more, maybe it's not tug at the heartstrings, but maybe it's more of a really pure environmental need. Earlier with more science rest, for example. Which is early, that's right. I was just talking with somebody earlier today who's trying to do some version of this for the very first such project for something that they think would be needed. Maybe that's going to be a really valuable gap filler as well. Got it. And so you mentioned that there's a new form of capital, but project finance, especially the large-scale project finance that you were talking about, that's been around a long time, right? Actually, you'd be surprised at how young an asset class it is from the perspective of large pension funds and institutional investors. It literally is younger as an official asset class, younger than venture capital, funnily enough. But yes, it's already, even though it's relatively young, the people who work on infrastructure who work on project finance, they have their recipe and that's their recipe. And it's like how to build a billion dollar airport. You're gonna do the engineering for that one airport. You're gonna work with a contractor around that one airport. All the contracts are gonna be just geared around that one project. Everything is bespoke to that one project. And it's huge amounts of transaction costs, but you can afford to do that at the billion dollar level. The challenge has been, how do you scale that down to the $5 million level? So our answer has been taken directly from our experiences in the solar space, where we and others introduced third-party capital in this structure and really unlocked, therefore, a lot of growth in that sector, along with cost declines that dovetailed with it as well. But basically, you say, okay, we're going to take all that same amount of transactional pain, all the detail orientation of project finance approach to figuring out how to take every little bit of risk that we can out of this for that first $5 million project. But we're going to do all of that so that then the next project is cookie cutter and the next one after that is cookie cutter. And in so doing, we amortize that pain, as it were. We spread out that pain over multiple projects if we've done our job right and we're partnered with somebody who also shares that vision of, hey, the first one, sure. It's going to be tricky. It's going to be detail-oriented just to figure it out amongst us. But then the next few are going to look exactly like that. So then I think what I'm hearing from you is that it's viable if you go after smaller projects, assuming you choose clients who or companies to work with who plan on many projects. And so you're signing on for all the projects. And maybe it's not a guarantee, but it's just assumed that if they work with you once and it goes well, that they'll work with you again. I figure we're giving them a hunting license. We're saying, okay, here's $25 million, and we've now negotiated amongst us exactly what type of project you're hunting. It's a lot easier if you're that developer team, if you're that startup, to then go through your pipeline of projects, go through your pipeline of sales, and say, okay, great, let's go focus on the ones that look like that. If they want to pursue other stuff in their big game hunting out there in the savannah, that's fine, but we've already done all the hard work to figure out, okay, but if you go get projects that look like that, 
bring them to us and it'll be really quick to get the capital to work to get the projects into place. And are the terms pretty consistent from deal to deal or are they all over the map? Deal to deal within a client, but what about across clients and industries as well? Yeah. So part of the challenges of introducing a brand new investment model has been, okay, well, there's not the established doc set. We can't just go to nvca.org and download the standardized small scale project finance term sheets and document sets like you can now for venture capital for a more established area. Plus, these are just simply more complex transactions as well. But part of what we're doing is really standardizing what this looks like. We have a very standardized financial structure. It will vary a little bit in each case, but you have to have that grounding of expertise and knowing, okay, here's the basic structure and how it works. And here's how we can modify it for the specifics of that organic composting opportunity or that animal waste methane capture opportunity or that containerized wastewater treatment opportunity. So yeah, it is a little bit of a dance. You have to have a consistent document set, a doc set as we call it. You have to have a consistent model that you're applying. But part of our role in being this pioneer of providing the first such project capital for that startup or that project developer is that we also have to have the pattern recognition and the expertise to modify it for them. You can't just take an off-the-shelf third-party capital financial structure for uh, name your rooftop solar financer and just apply that boilerplate with just a couple of names switched to one of these other opportunities. You have to make it specific for what works for them. And who's your competition? You know, there's a few other peer groups, I call them. I don't even call them competition out there. There's a group called Generate that's been around, gotten a lot of good attention to what they're doing. There's a group called Vision Ridge. There's a group called Ultra. There's some other folks as well. But we rarely bump into those guys competitively. And in fact, with some of them had nice sit down conversations about, hey, if we can, let's try to find deals where we can collaborate with each other. It's such wide open space. Uh, I won't give you a specific number in public, but we've got a deal pipeline. Having just launched our firm just a couple of years ago, we've already got a deal pipeline that measures in the billions. This is a huge untapped need in the marketplace, because if you think about it, so many of these solutions in the energy, food, water, and waste area, they're physical. You're talking about actually having to put physical systems out there into the world. And yet the capital sources for that have either been large format infrastructure funding, which like we talked about, works for large format wind farms and everybody wants to do it. And in fact, the returns are currently crushed for big solar farms, big wind farms, because every pension fund wants to do that, but it's not a fit for these smaller scale things. Or venture capital, which is still a little bit unfigured out in terms of how the model applies to these sectors, but certainly has been shown to not be a great source of capital for putting physical systems out there into the world. And in fact, I would argue is, and this is coming from a guy who has self-identified as a VC for over a decade now, I would argue the over-application of venture capital to put steel in the ground out there in the world has damaged and killed as many startups in this space as it's helped. The asset class that you're describing, so you and your peer group, it's only been a few years collectively that everybody's been around? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's basically coming out of the back end of what was a real success story in the space. The launch of greatly accelerated rooftop and community solar markets in the U.S. It's not entirely attributable to providing third-party capital, but it was a big part of unlocking it. Solar developers were able to go to homeowners, go to businesses, and say, would you like solar for no money down? And it will cost you about the same as what you're paying to your utility right now. That unlocked a huge amount of growth that then created a virtuous cycle with what was going on with reducing solar costs as well, solar panel costs and the like at the same time. And those two factors themselves just led to an absolute explosion of the solar market 
here in the United States. So who's the closest corollary in the solar world to what you guys are trying to do? The closest corollary, I mean, we're providing the capital behind efforts like a solar city. So solar city, it would be the developer that we partner with. Really, the best analog to what we're doing is the role that like a Morgan Stanley played in that last solar wave. There are less known names that actually were the pioneers that introduced the structure, the financial structure that then JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley and others came in behind and provided, okay, here's all the capital at mainstream Wall Street rates. And what I can tell you is there's literally tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of that capital just waiting now to be unleashed into these other areas. But they need somebody to come along and pioneer the structures and show that there's a couple of years of operating track record. Basically, if you are a Wall Street bank, like one of these guys, you want to be handed a black box that if you put money in the top of it and you turn the crank on the side, even more money comes out the back end of it. They're not ones to create that black box themselves. So there's firms out there that aren't real well known that were the ones that provided that to Wall Street. But that's the best analog I can give you is basically we are that early version of those big banks coming in and providing that capital. And you had mentioned before that that one of your criteria is based on GHG emissions. And so I would imagine that there are some types of projects that are easy yeses, some types of projects that are definite no's, and then this big gray area where it requires further analysis. Is that true? Yeah, for the most part, although it's not that we spend a lot of time on the ones that are at the margins. You know what I mean? Because so either a clear yes or it's a no? Not always, obviously. And nothing is ever that simple, obviously. But I'll just tell you, I start from the viewpoint. This is why I got into the business side of it and then the investing side of it altogether in the first place. Pollution is waste. If you want to run a business efficiently, if you want to just see a better economic value proposition, generally speaking, reducing waste is a good way to go about that. So by and large, we're looking at innovations. They want to be saving their customers money simply because they're reducing waste. A lot of these innovations we're looking at, they have very clear environmental attributes. And that's one of the major reasons why they actually have a good economic value proposition. Got it. So it's pretty much it's an eyeball of, is this towards the greater good? It's not that scientific because in your view, it doesn't need to be. It's not that it doesn't need to be. It's that it's actually really, really hard to do and would hold back a lot of transactions if you went to the nth degree. I've talked, for instance, with folks who offer to do GHG analysis at the portfolio level and want to charge you tens of thousands of dollars per portfolio company to do it. Anybody who has done venture capital transactions, for instance, knows that that's tantamount to what you would pay for the entire legal side of doing a transaction. So you put your finger on one of the challenges that we actually wrestle with a lot, which is, okay, well, how are we going to walk the talk and identify good opportunities and then track their performance, not just identify them up front, but track their performance and report that to our investors so that we know that at the end of the day, we're doing exactly what we said we were going to do, which is make a positive impact while creating really compelling financial returns. But how are we going to do that in an efficient way? And so one of the things is having the pattern recognition to know that uncaptured landfill methane is a big problem. And if you are instead diverting that trash to something where you're gasifying it in a way where you can capture it and then put it to better use, that is going to be a net environmental positive. Of course, there's only one factor that you have to consider from an environmental perspective versus a lot of other things. It does come down to at least in the upfront deal screening, are we even going to engage in this opportunity in the first place? Having a bit of that pattern recognition to know what you're going to watch out for, at least, 
in terms of red flags. So what's an example of one that you passed on for a non-financial reason? We've passed on an opportunity recently where it was in the water treatment space and it was a good efficient use of water in terms of just like the cost of treating a wastewater problem but it was pretty energy intensive. And our questions were around, okay, so what's the trade-off here? Are you spending so much energy to treat the wastewater that you're making a good use of water, but ultimately you're creating net worse atmospheric carbon emissions? But it was through that lens and not the energy as cost and cost as poor economics lens? In this case, it happened to be, I can't go into too many details, specifics about a, a deal that we didn't do. I don't want to tarnish somebody. What does it rhyme with? <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm just but, but yeah, in this case, they were leveraging some pretty cheap available energy that was there for them to use. That maybe wasn't the healthiest from an emission standpoint. Yeah, exactly right. And anybody who operates in, in these markets of energy, they know that there are some cost disparities between different forms of energy or even different sources of water and the like that people can take advantage of, driven as much by policy imbalances or just market imbalances. And you've got to watch out for those. So first of all, I'm psyched to have you on because we haven't had anyone representing the project finance perspective before, and I think it's an important one. Just understand that if you're looking to me to provide the project finance viewpoint, we are a weird beast within that universe. Can you explain? What do you mean? Well, like I was saying, large format infra folks are used to saying, okay, great, we're going to site this billion dollar wind farm somewhere, and let's do that one project. You're a small distributed project finance. How's that? Yeah, pretty much. That's right. And so yeah, they look at counts. us like we're like counts. we're crazy. Just under the same broader umbrella. <laughs> but the kind of stuff that we would look Cruiser at. Cruiser versus sport bike. This, <laughs> the stuff that we would look at that we would entertain doing is so bleeding edge from their perspective that they look at us like we're absolutely nuts. Got it. And so is there higher risk in that regard and then also higher return as far as deal structure? Yeah, that's a fair way to put it. And there's a fine line. Like I said, there's somebody I was talking to earlier this morning who's willing to do the very first of a kind plant. We're generally not willing to do the very first of a kind. We're more prone to do numbers three through 10. Do you have any success metrics that are not financial ones? Success metrics that are not financial ones. Well, I mean, I've talked about the impact. That's in the deal selection. But what about performance? Oh, well, we do track it over time. I mean, we do want to be able to show that over time we are having a net positive impact. As defined by what? As defined by, like I said, like we want to be seeing that across the portfolio, we are having a net positive impact versus the status quo on climate change, on water, on healthy meals produced. I guess, how do you measure that? How do you know if you're on track or not? We are not calling ourselves an impact firm. And so we're not looking for the greenest of the green. We just need to see that we're making substantially attractive returns without making things worse. Because we believe strongly that if you are on the right side of these natural resource scarcity trends, you're creating, as much as anything else, an economic tailwind for yourself. Because I'm an economist by background. Sooner or later, externalities get internalized. And so we just want to make sure that we're not backing something that, whether it's just for moral reasons, because we don't want to be making things worse, or just because it's a point of vulnerability for them economically down the road. If they are making things worse, then that means they could crack down on down the road by future regulations and the like. But you asked, what other metrics are we tracking? Honestly, for me, it boils down to something really simple. I have seen so many of these innovations languish and just not be able to get legs and not be able to get rolled out there like one would expect. No-brainer economic value propositions. Years of blood, sweat, and tears by innovators who have successfully commercialized something, they built a better mousetrap, and then they don't know why the world isn't beating pathway to their door. I want to help establish a financial model that brings mainstream capital to bear to help roll all those out. And one of the best ways to do it is to be able to allow them to do, you can call it two different things. You can call it a build-own-operate model or just simply blank as a service. 
instead of me trying to sell you a complicated box that treats wastewater so that then you're going to have to run that box yourself. Instead, what if I just said, hey, we'll just treat your wastewater and you just sign this five-year, 10-year service contract and we'll just treat it for you. We happen to use our own on-site equipment. That's what I want to enable. It's not going to be a panacea. What we need to be doing right now is introducing to this set of markets a whole wide-ranging capital ecosystem of which this is just one small part of it, but it's the one small part that we're tackling. I mean, this is more of a philosophical question, but I mean, one of the things I'm trying to figure out is there's kind of these quadrants because there's the impact quadrant, like how big an impact you can have on climate change. And then there's the livelihood quadrant. And of course, you need to match that with what's going to give you energy and what you're good at and, and things like that. But I'm curious for you, because you said you're environmentalist first and that you're kind of a a financial investor second. In my day job, it's the reverse. Okay. To be clear, like I said, we don't call ourselves impact investors. We are going after superior financial returns by helping companies unlock growth in this area where the innovations need to be at least on the right side of natural resource trends. I have my own personal reasons for why I think that's a really important role as an environmentalist. But I just want to be clear that in my day job, returns oriented. If you were not at all focused on livelihood and you were only focused on impact on decarbonization, would you be doing what you're doing now or something different? I mean, I self-selected this way after starting my career at nonprofits. I actually happen to believe that the financial world is a crucial lever, that there's literally, like I said, hundreds of billions of dollars just sitting on the sidelines that actually wants to be given permission to jump in here and help take the solution set that we already have and roll it out at scale, but they don't know how to, and somebody needs to do that. Now, to be clear, like I said, my personal perspective is that this is a powerful bank shot, but I'll readily admit it's a bank shot. And it's a bank shot in that we need to go out there and establish that there is a track record of strong financial returns from helping roll out stuff at scale. And then if that means that, number one, we're rolling out a lot more of these systems at scale directly because follow-on capital comes in behind us and does it, or even better, other people out of like the endowment community say, wow, okay, now we understand that financial model and that works, and we want to apply it to some of the stuff that was lower returns or at least higher risk because it's less well-established to do something you need to do it for the first time. But hey, okay, there's a financial structure that we can borrow and, and use that. That's really what I'm trying to get at personally. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this, so if I'm not, just give me the base stealing symbol or, or something. But in terms of your LP base, I guess, what does that look like? And also, what's the primary motivation behind the people or the entities that are writing checks in this type of vehicle? So what I can tell you is that we are institutionally backed. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'll pivot to sort of answer your question in that I'll just say I've had a lot of conversations over the years before launching Springland Capital with members of the institutional investor community. And there is great frustration out there. If you are a large pension fund investment manager, you are a 30-year investor. You can see these very clear megatrends and their economic impacts as well as anybody. You thinking long-term want to invest with that same sustainability tailwind that I'm describing. Now, over the past few years, there's been even more pressure on some members of the institutional investor community because you're also now being told to divest out of fossil fuel stuff. Where are you going to reinvest that? So there's a great hunger out there 
among at least a sizable minority. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a selection bias in terms of the conversations I've had, but still there is a sizable portion of the institutional investor universe out there who at a conceptual level buys into, we need to be making large investments, large amounts of investment into sustainability solutions. The problem is they haven't been shown good recipes for how to do that. As far as returns? As far as returns. And that is their primary motivation, obviously. They need to show that what they're doing with this is creating compelling financial returns, at least on par with what they would get by just the status quo of how they invest. And especially on the private market side, if you're talking about like private equity, venture capital, project finance, private markets in general, there's been a paucity of options being shown to them in terms of where they can invest to get those good returns. Venture capital, still scary, and at least from their perspective, unfigured out. Large format infrastructure, like I said, it's been figured out for the most part for at least wind and solar and now increasingly in batteries, but it's been so figured out that everybody wants to put money into it and there's a supply and demand imbalance. Frankly, good thing for the environment, but bad thing for them in terms of finding those returns that are attractive enough for them. And you've just seen the yields crushed on solar and wind projects. And so when those are really the only things being shown to the institutional investor community, at least at the scale of check that they need to write, it's actually a really frustrating problem from their perspective. So that's why I say one of the critical needs right now is the development of a more robust capital ecosystem, a more diverse set of financial models, of investing models that can be established, can start to show a track record, and then can be shown to that investor community that has those hundreds of billions of dollars, if not more, just sitting on the sidelines, just waiting to be given permission to be put to work. Now we're getting into the more interesting stuff versus the boring specific purposefully boring financial stuff of what we do at my firm. No, I think that stuff's good too. The details matter. And yeah, I talked to Patrick O'Shaughnessy runs a great podcast and we talked to him a while back when we were just getting going. And one of the things that he said was that his assumption going in was that short and general were the episodes that were going to do the best. But actually what he found was just the opposite, that long and niche are the ones that do the best. If people are going to devote an hour of their time, then they want to feel like they're really learning something new that they couldn't have learned by reading the paper or, or some other obvious source. <laughs> well, then buckle up, folks. Happy to, <laughs> <laughs> to get wonky. I guess last question is just if you had $100 billion and you could put it towards anything to optimize for decarbonization. So I'm not talking about financial returns now. I'm not talking about personality fit or what gives you as a human energy or your skill set. I'm, I'm just talking about money. Where would you put it to have the biggest impact and how would you allocate it? Can I only put it into one thing or? No, you choose. You can go anywhere you want. I mean, I do believe strongly in the need for further research and development and further innovation. I also think a few dollars go a long way at that end of things as well. So I would devote 10% of it to furthering innovation in these areas where we need further breakthroughs in renewables and zero carbon energy, especially in areas like reducing carbon emissions from agriculture activities, things like that. But the rest of it, did you include I have to put some into policy or are we just talking about in the economics? You don't have to put it. You can put it all in the most niche thing if you thought that that's where it would have the highest impact. Some of it needs to go into a long-term policy and communications engagement strategy so that all of this work that people are doing to try to show that this actually comes with economic benefits, not just economic costs. And that smart climate policy can actually unlock a revolution of economic growth. It's not a cost that we have to incur. If we do it the right way, it's an investment. And it's an investment that will yield results in terms of jobs and GDP growth. Great. So that message is out there. The big thing I was going to say is I would love to see, love to see 
a lot of that capital, if that amount was available, going into taking some of the existing solutions that we've got and rolling them out there at scale. We already saw what happens in the solar world when that happens. You start to drive a virtuous cycle where you drive cost reductions in those systems as well. And then that just makes it more attractive and then it attracts even more capital behind you. Even more important from a climate perspective, it's really important for folks to realize that if we are going to address climate change and at least partially mitigate it, we got to start immediately. There is a cascading impact of not doing that. If you leave the status quo the way it is, and emissions have actually been rising, still not going down. If you leave that the way it is, every year of that compounds itself because these don't get out of the atmosphere very quickly. And we could have a tremendous innovation 20 years from now that radically changes how energy is produced so that it's zero carbon and it's cheap and plentiful and it's a silver bullet and we never have to worry about the energy component of climate change again, except we will have had 20 more years in the meantime if we ignored the current solutions and didn't roll them out at scale. I think people forget about that when they think about the imperative to address climate change, that that means we have to throw everything in the kitchen sink at it, including everything we've got today. And do I think we need to do that to the exclusion of those innovations, going after those breakthrough technology solutions that'll be commercialized successfully 15, 20 years from now? No, absolutely. We need to do all of the above. We need to do that as well. But if you want to make a significant impact as quickly as possible and also just as long as possible, as sustainably as possible from just the time perspective, you need to start taking some of the solutions we've got today and roll them out at scale. And let me guess, the best way to do that is small distributed project finance. Actually, I'm not, I'm not even convinced about that. I mean, like I said, we've got a centralized hub and spoke infrastructure system. Replacing those like for like is frankly easier in many cases than replacing it with a distributed infrastructure. There's a lot of good to be done with distributed infrastructure too, but we need both. And it's not just infrastructure too. A lot of the solutions that we're looking at are really more sort of real assets oriented. It's like, what do you do with farmland? It's what do you do with the sort of trash problem and all of the other sources. People have a tendency to think about climate change as being an energy problem when I think, what is that, like only one quarter of the net problem? And a lot of the solutions are going to be just changing how we treat grazeland, right? It's going to be really prosaic stuff. It drives me nuts that everybody talks about the need to create some kind of breakthrough technology to take carbon out of the atmosphere, to figure out how to power that with solar power, and then to sequester it. And I'm like, we already have that. It's called a tree. And it's been working beautifully for millennia. So part of the answer here is afforestation and other things like that. So yeah, I mean, if you took that amount of capital and you really wanted to just, all you cared about was making an impact on climate change, there's a lot of things you could do that don't even touch infrastructure, that don't even touch technology, that could do a lot of good immediately. But this is, like I said, we need a much more diverse and robust capital ecosystem to cover all of these types of things and present that to Wall Street and sovereign wealth funds and everybody else with these trillions of dollars just sitting on the sidelines. And we need them to see that they actually do have a wide range of places where they can and should be placing that capital. And yeah, our little slice is just one little part of that. But we need to move beyond feeling like everything has got to be either venture capital or wind farms. Awesome. Well, thanks, Rob. I feel like I learned a ton. So I'm glad that you came on and made the time for me and, and for our listeners. No worries. Thanks for the invite. Happy to do it. And I hope something in there is a little bit interesting, at least. Yeah, I thought it was great. Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers. Thanks. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, 
you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.